Welcome to episode 10 of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fangrass. My name is Kevin Goldstein. I'm in DeKalb, Illinois. The revolving co-host chair turns its way once again to New York. I'm going to get accused of East Coast bias because we're back in New York. I've already booked next week's co- guest co-host. I'm pretty sure that person's in New York as well. But joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Harlem, he is one half of Cespedes Barbecue, and we will get into what they're up to later in the show. It's Jake Mintz. Jake, how are you? Kevin, they, they said New York is dead, but if you listen to Chin Music, you know that it is alive and well. <laughs> alive and well. I don't know what's going on. I just realized that yeah, next week's co-host, also in New York, I'm pretty sure. You Our know, guest... It, it is the biggest city in America, so... That's what I'm told. Um, I, our, our guest this week is also in New York. Um, it's Charles Starr, who is a, a, a my favorite legal podcaster. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. I think he's the most entertaining legal expert in the world. Uh, he's going to explain baseball's antitrust exemption to us because I, I will admit that I know that it exists, but I don't really understand it. Um, and we'll talk about the history of that and what it means for, for modern baseball. Uh, Jake and I will talk about all sorts of baseball stuff. We'll take your emails. We'll talk about our musical guest, the Event Horizon Jazz Quartet, which is just fun to say. Uh, and then we'll catch up with Jake. What's going on with Swiss Barbecue? Jake, you are a, a bit of a baseball fan. Yeah. 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 What is like, what's your, uh, if you weren't recording with me today, like what would your, what would your day be? Would you just, do you start when the day games are on and end when the night games end? Uh, basically, I, I try not to watch every moment of every game every day, just from like a health perspective. Like uh-huh. that's just not a happy way to live one's life. Um, you know, it's a little different now that we've started our recent our new job at writing for Fox Sports, where like for most of the pandemic, I wasn't writing and we were recording one or two podcasts a week. And like a lot of my days was just reading, listening to podcasts, you know, getting ready for our own podcast. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And riding my bike. That's the one thing that the pandemic has done is I ride my bike maybe two hours a day, three hours a day. Um, but as far as baseball consumption now, yeah, like if there's a game on, it's up. The only reason I don't have a game on right now is because my internet's not good enough to stream one while we're recording. <laughs> and so, d- during like prime time, you got like seven games going on. Are you? This is the game I'm watching. Or are you a flipper? It depends. So I'm an Orioles fan. So the Orioles are usually on the TV, um, which is funny, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they don't really always deserve it. I found the one the guy. TV. Found the one guy. So. Um, I will tend to like watch the early games while I'm cooking dinner on a quad box because um, I cook dinner probably six nights, five, ni- five, six nights a week. And then like once I'm done eating dinner, I usually will like miss the chunk of the middle games. Like I very rarely watch the, you know, the Royals or like the Brewers. I miss a lot of the eight o'clock starts. Mm. And then 
like will hang out with my significant other and then once she goes to bed i'll turn on the late games is usually okay. my general flow of an evening yeah i, I i'm a, i i've found that without it's it's strange in my new world of not having one team yeah. to watch every night like i found myself to be a flipper um i watched uh, through my apple tv and i tend to just constantly have this thing at the bottom showing me like what's going on and i go to the tension moments like oh there's shit there's a guy at first and second with no outs in that game and i'll switch to that yeah. You know, and once that that moment of tension is over, I'll go back to that screen and go, "Oh crap, the Yankees got second and third, and you know, and flip to that, whichever ones has has guys on base, basically." Right, and you know, this is the whole argument for like, should there be a baseball version of Red Zone, like NFL Red Zone? Aren't they and kind like, of doing that? Didn't they experiment well, with that this year? So kind of, and then Jordan and I actually hosted a show like this that no one watched. Um, when we were oh, at the zone, yeah, I'm on the zone, yeah, and like we were we were doing this on the weekends, and like it was cool, like you know you'd flip to the big games, and like MLB Tonight is kind of that, but there is really something about doing it yourself, right? That makes you feel like you're the captain of the ship, and you can yeah. steer it towards the game that you think is interesting, and that kind of power in a fan's hands is is cool. I also tend to follow pitching matchups a mm-hmm. lot, you know, uh, and then I find myself kind of when there's a toss-up, there are certain teams that I watch a lot. Like, I'm watching a lot of the Marlins. I'm watching a lot of the White Sox. Um, I've recently been watching a lot of the end of Yankees games out of, like, sick, you know, joy. Just for the fan shot? Just for the – just – oh, it's so good. Um, and then, obviously, <laughs> Padres, Dodgers, right? Like, I, I, I find myself watching certain teams more than certain players. And I, that's I, I, connected. I, I, yeah, I understand like wanting to watch the Padres and the Dodgers. Or I get understand wanting to watch the White Sox. That's a you know that th- there's tons of fun players to watch there. What's the Marlins thing? I just it's, think the energy is great. Like I just love watching that team. Enjoy the jazz themselves. effect. It's it's like eighty percent of it is jazz, but like a lot of it is Jesus Aguilar too, mm-hmm. right? They just they seem to like each other. Yeah, and like when. What am I watching baseball for, right? Like, why am I tuning in? So that I can feel connected to certain people and storylines and teams. And, like, the Marlins give me that. And, like, recently the Royals have give, given me that. Like, this is a very fun Royals team again. And, like, I don't need to watch, like, a dominant juggernaut. Like, the Dod- Like I do watch a lot of the Dodgers, right? But, like, I, I get it. Like, I've seen it. You know yeah, what I mean? it's a machine. Right. I, I just find the Marlins to be very compelling this year um, for a lot of reasons. So, so speaking of machines, the, the, the big story in the standings right now um, are the Oakland A's who started the year off very bad. Um, but at the same time, like they started their, their year off going um, Astros, Dodgers, Astros. And obviously the Astros started great and have been the opposite of that since. But it was Astros, Dodgers, Astros. And since then, uh, they've lost their mind. Currently at 11 in a row, suddenly in first place. And... I think that if you ask me what the most competitive division in the AL West or in the AL is going to be, I think it's the West. I think yeah. Oakland's Oakland's good. They're not, you know, they're not going to win 180 games. But Oakland's good. The Mariners are low key good. The Astros ain't what they used to be. Like this is going to be a fun division. And the Angels look as legit the as, as bad, an yeah. Angels team can be. Right? There's obviously a ceiling on the Angels because of the way that they operate. But like this could be an 88 win. Angels team. Mm-hmm. You can convince me of that. An 88 might win it. An 88 might win it. I, I, I want to talk about the A's for a second. Like, I watch a lot of college baseball and a lot of small school Division three college baseball is like my side project. I, but you, and, and to be clear to everyone, you played. 
I did play. I, I we can talk about that later if you want. But <laughs> I, I played three years very poorly and one year inexplicably well. Um, but I, the A's at the beginning of the season is like very SOS. Like in college baseball, you talk a lot about your strength of schedule because it matters, right? Because it's so imbalanced. And in Major League Baseball, we never really talk about it because over the course of 162 games, it just kind of filters out. But the A's so far this year, I think so much of what they've done could be attributed good and bad to who they're playing, right? Like they they got the twins who were probably good coming off of the COVID layoff. Right. right? Yeah. They got them decimated. They got them decimated. They got a bad Diamondbacks team. And they got a decimated, I'm pretty sure, Astros team. Or like a scuffling Astros team right. when they beat them. So like it's early days. The A's are better than they were in the first six games and not as good as they've been in the last eleven. But it does kind of all point to like, yeah, yeah, it's probably like an eighty eight win team. I I don't know about you, but I have concerns about the pitching. Like, I think they're going to hit. But the starting rotation, like, can you name the five guys off the top of your head right now? I can tell you Mike Fires is still hurt. Uh, (laughs) Mania, a a underrated – I watched two of this guy's spring starts. I was like, this guy's not bad. Cole Irvin. Yeah. He's actually pretty good. Yeah, he's fine. Um, Okay, Bassett. Yep. Bassett, Mania, Irvin. Who am I missing? Oh, Lazardo. Yeah. I got four. Who am I missing? That's pretty good. Um, I had it in front of me. No, I don't. So I, 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 I'm asking more of like, hey, do you know? More than like, hey, trivia question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I hear what you're saying, but it's – it's and they – you know, and, and to, to speak to your point, six of their next nine games are, are against your beloved Orioles. Yeah. Um, Congrats to them. So they can maybe keep this going. Yeah. I – probably. I mean, the Orioles are – Again, the Orioles are – you never know. They'll play teams close and they'll chuck other ones away. But I, I – yeah, I, I wish I had more to say about the A's. Like I think that they're totally, aggressively, completely, totally fine. Like they're just fine. And I I, I, <laughs> I think that the bullpen is, is interesting. I'm a huge Yusmero Petit fan. I think he's – I love Yusmero Petit. Oh, I think he's so underrated. I was looking at this today. Top – he's the – has the – I know there's a dumb way to evaluate relievers, but whatever. BRF war relievers since 2017. He's third. And a lot of that is because he throws a lot of innings. Right? Yeah, a lot of that's innings and usage and, and right. But at the same time, like the unless it's it's so it's almost impossible. There's there's only a handful of them which are consistent relievers in the non-closer category. Exactly. The rest of them are all complete, unpredictable messes. Um we'll get to that in a second. But like Yusmer Petit's consistently pretty good. And I think, and, in a and he's gonna, like and he's gonna throw strikes, and that's yeah. uh, God knows those relievers who can do that are sometimes worth their weight in gold. Again, this is like, especially in college baseball, you just want to bring in a reliever who's not gonna piss their pants. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, Yusmero Petit is never gonna blow up. Like he's gonna get through the year, he's gonna yeah. throw eighty innings, and he's gonna have an ERA around three five, and like that's great. And especially in a season like this where there's so much, you know, so many question marks about pitchers being able to go deep into starts. Having a dude who can bridge the fifth, sixth, seventh for you twice a week is that's I mean that's crazy valuable. Yeah. Um, uh, on a player level, the player the player everyone's talking about right now um, is is Corbin Burns of Milwaukee. Um, you know, I, I think everyone you know entering into the season you know saw Milwaukee as one of the favorites in the in the National League Central, and much of that revolved around 
kind of this one-two punch of, of, of Woodruff and Burns. I think most people on the season would have favored Woodruff. I, maybe I still would. Like, I know. But right now, Corbin Burns, um, his line looks like, uh, it looks like something Jack Leiter had in March. Um, it, it's 24 innings, eight hits, 40 strikeouts, and zero walks. Wow. Have, have you watched much of him? Not really. I mean, like I watched one start. My favorite thing about the early season stat line is the eleven oh two ERA plus. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great early season thing, right? Is a, a four digit ERA plus. Yeah, the the zero point three three WHIP also you know um, catches catches ones up. Oh, it's so good. I mean, the thing about him in the in the starts that I've watched is if you were like, which pitcher won't have a walk? If, if I had just said what pitcher doesn't have a single walk four starts, you know, three weeks into the season, who would it be? You would pick a guy who's not averaging 97 miles an hour on his fastball. Right, right. right. And that's what's amazing about him to me is we very rarely have guys who are able to keep the ball in the zone and throw at the top of the velo register. It's like like just Garrett Cole. Right. right? And like Burns – I'm not saying Burns is Garrett Cole, but – it's it's a very 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 rare combination of skills, and it's interesting because he you know kind of went mostly from a four seam guy to a two seam guy, which is going against mm-hmm. um, standard baseball protocol in twenty in the twenty first century, if you will. That's um, just because he gets so much movement on. It. He just the, the four seamer was he four seamer had too much horizontal movement on and, and ends up catching too many bats and. Now he's throwing a two-seamer, so he's actually like a bit of a unicorn throwing 97-mile-an-hour turbo sinkers now, um, but also being able to command it at that level. Well, he's also – I mean, I got his you know, his baseball savant up now. Like he's throwing 50% cutters as well, mm-hmm. which is – it is – you're right. It's fascinating to see a side-to-side guy dominate to this extent in this era. And I know Langenhagen's written a lot about this, how the game will fluctuate and overcorrect and recorrect over time. And like, we're right. never going to have what we have now forever. Do you think that his, because like in my head, a guy who works east-west instead of north-south would have a harder time throwing strikes? Usually? Is that something that you found? Like, which of those two types of pitchers, like I know those are very simplified boxes, but like the east-west guy or the north-south guy, who tends to have better walk rates? Um the problem with the north south guys is like the the super north south guys tend to be spinning it so much that they have trouble commanding it like the the super you know I, term i was using like a, a really vertical attack so these guys with you know the the the, the classic like re- high velo rising fastball that they're elevating a lot right most of those guys have the high arm angle and they're throwing like true power down air breakers with big spin and i think those guys have trouble um, controlling that spin and keeping it in the zone, um, they end up burying breaking balls and or over elevating fastballs. They end up having a lot of high and low pitches. So I don't think it's a huge command advantage to be a vertical guy. Um, and and you know you mentioned Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's kind of is is a very vertical pitcher, and, and but he's a unicorn in in how much he can command what he does. Right, and I you know I I know I compared Burns to Cole briefly earlier but they're very different types of pitchers yeah but it's it to me it's more of like throwing you know 92nd percentile fastball velocity 
and you haven't walked anyone. <laughs> like, that's just absolutely ludicrous, especially in this day and age where, you know, I know you talked about driveline a little bit on last week's pod, but I think that the gain, like so much of, of the game now is being able to throw hard, but very mm-hmm. rarely when you gain that velocity are guys able to maintain the same level of command and control. Right. It definitely, I mean, the, everything that we, you know, the, the, the increase of power in the game period has also led to more walks. Right. Um, and part of that is because pitchers can't control what they're doing as much. And part of that is because pitchers have to be more scared of every single human in the lineup. Um, you know, if you look at lineups in the eighties, you had, a, you had, you know, two, three, if you're a really good team four real power threats and the rest were just kind of hitters or defenders. And now, you know, we've, it, we've just gotten to the point where, um, you know, if you, most lineups, most good lineups, one through nine in the AL and one through eight in the NL, uh, every one of those guys can at least hit a mistake over the fence. I mean, and, and you got to be more careful. Y- you said the eighties, but I, I, it's funny. I was looking at the 2008 Tampa Bay Rays roster the other day. Do you know about this? I mean, yeah, the, well, obviously you've heard about you, them. Because this is what you do. I've heard of the 2008 Tampa Bay Rays. Have you heard of them? Yes. Have you heard of them? They were, they were kind of a big deal for, for a bit somehow. Uh, they had three guys with 20 home runs. Mm-hmm. And one of them was Eric Hinsky, who didn't even start. Um, Carlos Pena, Evan Longoria, that was it. Everyone else in the starting lineup, seven homers, six homers, one homer, eight homer, nine, 13, 11. Like, we're not that far away in the past from a completely different era of baseball. And I know that, like, we've been numbed with the home runs over the last four years. But it really hasn't been that long with this current state of play. Like, we, we after the steroid era, at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's – you bring that back. I, I'm even thinking about, like, the, the – and these were great teams. Um, like, the, the Cardinals teams of the mid-'80s yeah. where it was, like, seven guys who could run and hit and Jack Clark. You're thinking of like Mark Belanger, right? <laughs> but that's the thing. Like Mark Belanger couldn't would never survive in today's game, and no. had you know an 18 year career as a as a plus plus defensive shortstop who hit 200 every year. Right, and you know we can. This is a much longer, grander conversation. I think it is baseball's responsibility to ensure that the environment exists in order to that players like that can survive and exist and thrive in in baseball. Because I think the more different types of players we have, the better. Instead of like, again, like I never want to complain about a lot of home runs. I like home runs. Fans love home runs. Casual fans love home runs. But home runs like, are cool. home runs are great. Every no one goes to a baseball game and is like, "Ooh, man, no home runs today. That was great." Um, but I do think that it is important that the Mark Belangers, you know, of the world can thrive in this current era. I know we have now. We are nowhere near Corbin Burns, but. That's Who cares? Have you have you heard the show? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny you mentioned. I'm, I'm actually working on a piece. I'm not going to get too much into it now until I reach conclusions. Uh, but I'm writing about Nick Madrigal, who I almost just called Warner Madrigal again. I can't. Just, I, have wow. such a, I have such a weird brain. I'm one of one. like I'm one of like 150 people on the internet who like appreciates that. <laughs> like and even knows amount, who he is. The amount of like Estrellas Orientales I've watched over the last two years, like. <laughs> And so, but I'm working on, on on a thing about Nick Madrigal, and and my early point, and I'm not going to dig too much into this because I'm still working on it, is he's really good at baseball, but I'm not sure how valuable he is hmm. because of what he does in today's game. Um, like it, and and trying to, I'm trying to figure out like how much he really needs to hit, just in terms of batting average, to be a good second baseman. 
Like, how good does Nick Madrigal need to be at being Nick Madrigal? Right, exactly. In order exactly. to continue being Nick Madrigal. In order to be, in order to be not not average, but good. Like, I mean, you're talking about a guy when he hits 300 who has like a 740 OPS because of, because of the the way he does it. Right. Um, and so, hey, I'm trying to figure that kind of stuff out. Um, you like weird stuff. You like entertaining stuff. Um, in the game. Did you watch the the Patriots Day game with the the Red Sox and the White Sox? I watched two innings of the game. I watched the important ones. I watched my good friend Lucas Giolito get absolutely pulverized at 11 a.m. in the morning, and then I tuned out, and then I tuned back in to watch your mean Mercedes uh, and his short limbs throw baseballs. <laughs> so um, it was a blowout, and the. White Sox have some injury problems. They wanted to save some innings, save some arms. I understand why they do it. I have no problem with them doing it. Um, Yerman Mercedes pitched an inning and, uh, and Mendick pitched an inning. And when that happens, things get fun on Twitter. Um, you know, I wrote a fake scouting report. Everyone's talking about what he's throwing um, and his velocity and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there were people complaining about it. There were people saying like, you know, they're only down six and they, why don't, you know, this is basically just a forfeit and it's not good. I, I just think it's fun and entertaining. Like, where do you stand on, on, on that divide? So most of the time when position players pitch, it's not a six run game. So like, I think let's just get that. I, I want to separate what happened on Patriots day mm-hmm. from the 99% of the time that it's like a big blowout, right? Like this happens how many times a year where it's relatively close, like three times, I know Joe Madden was doing it at the end of his Cubs tenure a little bit, but like for the most part, they're blowouts. And my general thought about that is it's a blowout and there are really two, if a game is 12 to two and it's the eighth inning and it's in Pittsburgh, okay, and the Pirates are losing, there's two ways the game can die at that point, okay? It can die a blowout where they bring in like the equivalent of JT Brubaker, Right, or, and just, or and something, just, and just let him let him wear it. And he like he either wears it or he just throws a forgettable inning, and like no one cares. Or we have a fun, entertaining thing happening in an otherwise meaningless baseball game at that point, right? And and if it's mm-hmm. a, if it's a binary choice between boring end of a game and very bizarre position player throwing pitches, I'll take the latter every time. Let's now, be entertained. Let's be entertained. That's why no one is like. No one watches – we watch the game because it's fun, right? And it is undeniably fun, I think, to watch these guys pitch in a way that watching hitters – pitchers hit is not fun, but that's a different conversation. Right. Um, but in the six-run game, it does feel like, uh, like, uh, I don't know. Like, but there were mitigating it, circumstances between the schedule course. and some guys, you know, guys a little banged up. He, he you know, LaRusa needed to save some innings here. Right, and it's a getaway day, right? It's 11 a.m. game. And, like, when you have an 162-game schedule, you're penciling in every team, except for the Dodgers, is penciling in 60 losses, right? You just are. Yeah. And they're going to come. And if you're down by that many runs, you're probably going to lose. That's the math. 99% of the time, you're going to lose. Yeah, no, so, it's baseball simple math. You're going to win 54 games. You're going to lose 54 games. And yep. what you do in the other 54 is is... is Exactly. Is, is every is your season. Right. So like I have no problem with this. It really doesn't irk me. Um 
I think that, like, it's not ideal. You never, like, if you're Tony LaRusso, you don't want to wake up and be like, man, I hope I can get your mean on the bump today. But, like, if it has to happen, it has to happen. I'm, what, what are your general thoughts on it? Uh, I'm with you. I'm entertained. I understand why they had to do it in, Chicago, in, in the Patriots Day game. It, it's You'd rather it not happen in a six-run game. But at the same time, and I'm not the biggest fan of win probability charts. I, I think they're a little funky, but... I'm sure the win probability at that point was 95, 96%, right? Yeah, had to be. Had to be. Um, and like the, the Red Sox have had the Bulls best bullpen in baseball, basically, this year. They've been incredible. And it was like, are we going to win? Probably not. And like and, La Russa's in the dugout. He can tell if they're checked out or not, right? Mm-hmm. On a Monday morning game, getaway day, I have no issue with that. Um, You, you said the Red Sox have, you know— such a good bullpen they have had a great bullpen so far this year but there are teams having some bullpen woes right now always there's always bullpen woes this is one of my one of my thoughts is like every year there's a team or more with a just disastrous catastrophic bullpen last year was the phillies and this year it could be the phillies (laughs) (laughs) i mean they've had some guys pitch well right yeah no they have they have they it's certainly better and i I, the one thing that is infuriating as a fan is when you have a bad bullpen and the team just sticks with it, like and they from year to year and they just don't shake it up. The Phillies, at the least, they they basically change they everyone out and everyone in. Yeah, it's, it's new guys whole, not pitching well. Whole new cast of characters. I mean, if okay, so if you want to look at bullpen, like looking at like bullpen ERA is always hard because like a lot of bad teams are frequently not in games, and right. so those runs. They're runs, but they don't feel as important. You right. Know what I mean? They're throwing reliever number six instead of reliever number two. Right. Well, I guess the reason I wanted to talk about bullpens and bad bullpens is it's such a good sneaky way to accidentally wink, wink, tank a season. Like <laughs> someone said this on a podcast once. I don't remember who it was, but it's like if you want to tank low key, build a pretty good team with a bunch of good hitters and starters that your fans get excited about. And then just get a just a terrible, terrible array of relievers who will blow things in the later innings every time. And, and, and even easier now that, you know, we talked about this earlier, just the way teams are using starters these days and the way that right. has changed. Bullpens have gone from, you know, a third of the game to nearly half the game. Yeah. Um, and-, and so I, as, as someone who used to have roster construction as part of their job, um, bullpens are nightmares like right. they're, they're just the worst it's just the they're, it's the worst and, and like they're they're completely unpredictable pieces and you can just kind of bet on stuff and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad and like other than you know like truly really good closers your range of possibilities is so wide um it can be a bit of a dart throw and you just kind of you just kind of bet on stuff and hope things work out and, and it's interesting because like i mean if you talk about a team with bullpen woes the astros certainly come to mind Absolutely. Bullpen's been awful. You know, Brian Abreu continues to scuffle his command. Uh, Joe Smith's been disastrous so far. Um, You know, Blake Taylor wasn't the same Blake Taylor before he went to the IL, so he was hurt. Brooks Raley, who was a nice find last year, has not pitched well. Um, You know, Ryan Stanek pitched really well early and has turned back into Ryan Stanek. Where's my Um, man Andre Scrub? It's the Scrubster. He was hurt. Um, I think he's actually pretty good. His stuff's pretty good, but it's, I mean, dude, I talk about it's... 
you know, we talked about the the value of of a guy like Petit who can come in and like at least he's going to throw strikes. Right. Um, Scrub certainly doesn't give you that. No. So like, <laughs> um, you know, when you're scary. when you're a good team and you have you have to have a competent bullpen. Yeah. Right. You have to. Like it's just a must. Have you come across anybody in the baseball world and like you don't have to name names? Like if you were running a team, you're in charge of the whole thing. Would you like make a position like bullpen czar? Like their only job <laughs> is to build, is to find relief arms. It's an interesting thought. No, I've never known anyone who's, who's thought about it as a, as a singular role. Um, it's an interesting concept. I've always um, thought of, and I still think a lot about how managers use bullpens. And I think it, I think it's a low key underrated aspect. Um you know, other than a giant Zach Britton blunder, um, I think, you know, actually Buck Showalter was very good at relief management. He was great, which is why I'm not mad at him. Right. Um, I think present day, I think Craig Council's really good at using his pitchers the right way. Absolutely. Um, and, and obviously you get great benefits when your, you know, last two guys out of the pen are Devin Williams and Josh Hader. But at the same time, I think he, especially in the, the Brewers are, tend to be a short leash, short leash team with their starters. I think he does a really good job mixing and matching the right way just to these bridge innings that we talked about that are so many more than they used to be. You know, I mean, he needs to get 6, 9, 12 outs to get to Williams and Hayter. And I think the way he uses his guys under that um, is really, really smart. Um, I thought A.J. Hinch was really good at bullpen management um, and, and – Still is. He just has way less talent in Detroit right now than he had before. Um, Although Gre- th- I'm a I'm a big Gregory Soto believer. It's big stuff. Yeah, big stuff. Big stuff. Um, yeah, the Tigers are kind of fun to watch. I know deceptively. Don't tell yeah. anyone. Don't t- don't don't tell anyone that. Okay, that's well, our let them have the, let them have the, let them get their ratings on MLB <laughs> TV. Come on. Um, the big news off the field this week. Um, was it's just so funny that this becomes a big story um jeff passon wrote about it because who else would it's either him or ken rosenthal at this point in the world um we had our first cba negotiations mm. um and they 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 met over zoom and it was a lot of people it was kind of the entire negotiating teams from both sides as long as, as well as a lot of the player reps um i i would i would boy i would kill for a screenshot of that of that grid drop uh, drop the zoom link yeah, just let them, just I'll I'll mute myself. Andrew um, Miller, Andrew Miller, we, I'm like 90 percent sure you're probably in there. Oh yeah, you're in there. Just just DM me. <laughs> I'll turn my screen to black. Yeah. Um. I'll I'll write a fake player's name. Exactly. Just put do that. <laughs> um. And so this was, I think this was this, this felt like it was just a get to know you kind of meeting, um, that we have to have. Obviously, it's it's weird. Um. You know, we are six months away from from the end of this collective bargaining uh, agreement. Um, and it was made pretty clear that that some of the things the players are going to be focused on is competitive integrity in terms of uh, creating a rule set that allows um, or encourages teams to put the best product on the field and kind of yeah. getting rid of some service time issues. Um, and as well, and it also sounds like the players are open uh, to the concept of, of funneling money lower um, as, as part of achieving that. Um, 
it sounds like the meeting was perfectly, you know, people got along fine. And then as you'd expect in a just, hey, we're sitting down right now and, and, and just, you know, setting some, some baselines here. Um, does the fact that this meeting even happened give you any optimism that we'll be in a good place after the last out of the world series, which is when the CBA expires. It gives me like 0.0001% more. It's a round where I might be 0.002, but yeah, I'm, I'm because similar. Like, the, the news story out of the, like the passing story could have had a line about like, despite the, you know, talks happening, there was clearly tension like percolating through the right. zoom call. Right. But there's none of that, right. There's none of that in there and maybe it existed and I'm sure there, it obviously existed, but I am just somewhat pleased that they're sitting down and starting this now because on the outside, one of the most frustrating things is when both sides are like, oh, well, we ran out of time. It's like you had months. So I'm happy that the Zoom call existed in April. There's always the weird game of chicken. You come to the table. Well, you come to the table, you know, Um, and, and, you know, you are going to get to a point where, you know, Someone's going to push a proposal across the table and and the other side is going to go, don't talk to us again until you change this. Right. Like this, we're not, this isn't a starting point. Uh, we don't even have a discussion point here. Oh yeah. This is like the first inning of a Rays Yankees game where everyone's getting <laughs> along. Like it's going to get chippy. Right. Okay. We're prepared for that. And like, I, I wouldn't describe myself as optimistic. I don't think that what happened the other day, like this meeting changes how I think things are going to play out, you know? So but, do you think you think this is going to expire without a new agreement? Uh, I, I, yeah, I do. I, I do, and I think it's really going to be. Terrible. I think we're like fifty fifty. I, I am work stoppage, but I think I think this expiring without an agreement, I would bet hard on. Yeah, and I, based upon what we have seen from the league and from the union over the course of the last two years and how they operate with one another, there's no reason to think that it's going to be different in, this time around, right? The players are the same. Like the characters in the story are the same. And yeah, I I don't know if the league is always operating in in the best faith in the way that they've dealt with the union, especially during a lot of the COVID stuff and using COVID to kind of push some things through. That maybe should have been discussed a little bit further. Um, but I have, there's no reason to think that anything has changed. Right? It's the same. Right. Thing. And it's important that people understand if, if if we get to that point, if if the World Series ends and the CBA expires. There is no CBA. Technically, and I, this is not a, 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 an aggressive move by the owners. It's just what happens technically when this expires is the players are locked out. Um, and so if this happens, like there is no, there's no off season. If the players are locked out, you can't make trades. You can't sign free agents. It, everything is just kind of frozen until you have a new CBA. Um, and so, you know, even if we don't have a work stoppage, we're going to have kind of an off season stoppage immediately. Um and things will get real weird real quick. The off-season, off-season. The off-season, off-season. Which, I mean, yeah. Like, I just I just am worried that there, the way that a work stoppage gets construed into the greater sports consciousness, generally, and a lot of this has to do with kind of the way that media construes this, or at least has in the past to be more kind of pro league than pro player. Like that concerns me in terms of base baseball's over or major league baseball's overall health within the American and global sports landscape. That's my biggest concern. Right. Right. Is the long term damage this can have. I think 
look, I was not alive. Sorry to make you feel old. I was not alive in 1994. Don't worry about it. I was, I was only 25. Yeah, yeah you were, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is what I am now, Kevin. So, exactly. you know, like, I don't, I don't remember what happened, obviously. But, like, the general narrative that I have been taught is that the strike went a long way to kind of chipping away at the public's, you know, trust and faith and love for the game. Um, and what percentage of that was on the, the you know, the the league and versus the union, et cetera, et cetera, is, is not necessarily the point. Like, people cared less. And, mm-hmm. like, I'm – that scares me, you know? I I don't want the, the league to shoot itself in the foot here by, like, missing the forest for the trees. Do you think – and, and I, 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 I wonder and I worry because um... – you know, I, I think we all create our own little vacuums uh, as far as what, you know, as far as baseball culture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think at all the the percentage of people who favor the owners over the players or vice versa has, has do you think that needle has moved a lot since you were not born in 1994? 100% I think it's moved. And like part of that is the bubble in which I operate and you operate for sure. But I do think that like the general dislike for the commissioner and the league is something that has like grown within all sports cultures. Yeah. Right? Like did people used to boo the commissioner all the time for no reason in all sports? Right? Yeah. No, I think you're right. I I think it it goes beyond baseball. I think just general trust and authority has dwindled. And that's a good thing. Of course. That is a good thing. That's a great thing. Right. Um, I don't know what that means going forward. Like, I don't know. I, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I, I am like such an optimistic person. Yes, you are. In a lot of ways. You know, I, I recognize a lot of time is a product of my own privilege, but this is a very, uh, a situation where I do not have any optimism. So that happy note, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Charles Starr, who will explain to everyone baseball's antitrust exemption. And then we'll come back with your emails, an update from Jake on his amazing life. We'll have a moment of culture and then wrap up. So stick around.
podcast special guest time. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have the special guest. As someone who used to travel uh, almost half of my life, uh, podcasts were near and dear to me. And like everyone else, I subscribed to a bunch of them, but didn't listen to all of them because you never can listen to every episode. But one person whose episodes I listened to no matter what he did, uh, he used to be the host of, of a couple legal podcasts. First one I listened to was the one called Mike Dicta, D-I-C-T-A, uh, and then Hostile Witness. And it's just a thrill to have him on. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like a fanboy right now. He is uh, certainly America's most entertaining legal analyst. Uh, he's written about legal issues for Slate, Vice, Deadspin, and The Outline. And join, joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Brooklyn, New York, it's Charles Starr. <laughs> Charles, how are you? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I am looking around at my luxury and uh, feeling like people should be feeding me grapes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to have you on because, um, you know, a couple weeks ago and... and, and you know, we saw what happened with baseball moving the all-star game. Yeah. And then we saw um, the usual reaction to this, which is kind of Republican theater saying, we're, we're going to take away their antitrust exemption. I have been covering and or working in baseball for over two decades now. And if someone said to me, well, baseball is an antitrust exemption, I'd go, yeah, it's silly, huh? And if you said, can you explain it to me? I would have said, no, no chance, no idea. <laughs> and so... Um, I just kind of wanted to give, I just, I know they have one. And that's, that's like the, the summary of it. Um, we're rolling on a century. They, they received this antitrust exemption via the Supreme Court uh, in, in 1922. Right. Uh, can you just explain what antitrust exemption is? Like, I guess well, first to explain, I, I guess, what is trust and what are they exempted from? Okay. Well, I mean, it's anti. <laughs> The, Don't trust the, anything. Yeah, this is this is like someone was like start at the beginning, and then you're like, okay, there was heaven and earth. Um, uh, but well, okay. So what it what antitrust means is that it's basically an anti-monopoly provision, right? Trusts like Standard Oil and things like that were you know market dominating. Uh, corporations. And so the Antitrust Act was meant to break them up and keep them from acquiring too much market power. And a hundred years ago, right, in the in a case, it was like federal baseball. I don't remember who the defendant was, but it was basically a league that had its teams excluded from the major leagues or the American League or the National League, because it's going back to its pre- I guess it's 1922, so I don't know if that's pre-merger or what the formalities are. Yeah, it's post-merger. It was a federal league, which was like a breakaway league, and they started signing some big league players, including a couple big names. One was Joe Tinker, and that's what kind of caused all this. Right, and so they were suing for antitrust, saying, you know, those bastards won't let us play them, (laughs) and the only money is in playing the Yankees, and so uh, they sued. And in 1922, on the stupidest possible grounds, like I'm sure there were good grounds to say that you can't just sort of make them play you. But what they actually said in 1922, in a paragraph that is shorter than an Axios article, they they were like, no, uh, it is not interstate commerce. Because the games are local 
And the travel and all of that is incidental to local exhibitions. And so baseball is not covered by the Sherman Act because baseball is not interstate commerce. And so to be covered by the Sherman Act, you have to be conducted. It's got to be federalized, okay, right? right? If it's right. going to be covered by federal law, it has to involve interstate commerce in one way or another. And of course, the interstate commerce doctrine in the last hundred years has changed a lot, <laughs> you know, like what is and isn't covered and how states and the federal government laws play with the you know intersect with each other is very like it's very different than it was in 1922 when you know there wasn't the same kind of tv and national radio and all of the other things that are just like the water that fish swim in to our lives today or what like has been completely transformed so in 1922 it was stupid but you can be like, I guess if you had to take a coach everywhere, you could think of a game at Scheib Park as like local right. or whatever. Um, and so a bad decision makes no sense. But that's why the Sherman Act didn't apply. So something right? crazy that I'm now looking back at is that it was a unanimous decision. Yeah. Nine and oh. Yeah, but they, I mean, I don't think that there was quite as much, uh, I think, I, I'm not a historian in the, okay. that way, but I think that unanimity was a lot more common, but what was also more common was nine opinions. Right. <laughs> like everyone, everyone just, like that's sort of more a 1700s, 1800s England thing where every judge just writes some fucking inscrutable five sentences <laughs> to explain why they don't completely agree. But yes, it was unanimous in 1922 that they were like, no, baseball is... Uh, Baseball is not interstate commerce, which was bad, but it got a lot worse in 1953. Okay, so what happens in 53? So 1953, George Toulson, I think his first name was George. George Toulson is basically a scrub uh, who bounced around the minor leagues. I don't think he ever made it higher than Class B. But most importantly, his rights were owned by one team. Right. He was a Yankees backup. And then he moved out to California and signed a contract with some league, tried to sign a contract with some team in like the Pacific Baseball League or something like that. And he argued that the way his rights were handled by Major League Baseball suppressed him. And so he should be able to fight the way that the Major Leagues controlled player movement under the Sherman Act. And again, he lost, but the opinion was straight stare decisis, right? 1953, they were like, look, federal baseball is a precedent. Congress had 30 years to make, to like change, like update the Sherman Act. Like, I think judges often have like a very intentionally stupid way of looking at how Congress behaves. <laughs> And so they will take congressional inaction to just pat themselves on the back and say, obviously, we were right, because if we were wrong, then Congress, which is notoriously good at doing things, would have done something. 
about this. And since in 30 years, they never added a section to the Sherman Act, which says, obviously, this also applies to baseball, stupid, then we were right the first time, and it doesn't, right? So that's what seven judges said in Toulson, six or seven. And then two judges wrote a dissent, and they were like, this is the dumbest thing you've ever written. <laughs> like, in 1922, you might have been able to get away with this. But in 1953, everything about baseball is clearly nationalized, right? right? Game of the week on the radio and the coverage and the way, like, baseball is not a series of local exhibitions, we know this to be true. And the fact that Congress is so sclerotic that they haven't corrected our obvious mistake doesn't make it not a mistake. And so the fact that you would keep this opinion is completely preposterous. I'm right. I'm curious about what happens between 1922 and 1953. I think you said it was the Toulson. Yeah. Like the NFL and that you know, whatever basketball league existed in the NHL, all these other American sports leagues spring up during that time, and they don't have the antitrust exemption. That's correct. How? How? Like, how does that get justified? Well, because I don't think the the Mackey decision in the NFL, I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't know that a lot of this was fought on antitrust grounds generally, right? Right. The NFL doesn't enter this until much later. I I didn't in my notes write down the date on... uh, It's fine. We hate talking about football here. Yeah, that's okay. I'm sorry sorry for bringing it up. No, no, no. Because it's worthwhile. Because the way it plays relates to a lot of how baseball compensation works too. But in the NFL had something called the Roselle Rule, which was basically if you signed a free agent, then you had to compensate the team that you signed him away from. Kind of like right. kind of like the way global soccer works. Kind of, I mean, yes, in the way that global soccer works, but more specifically, the way that like, uh, it's now negotiated in baseball. But you know, you get like compensation picks yeah. at the end of the first round or whatever. Right. You know, like, but those are negotiated, whereas the Roselle rule was just imposed by the league, and. You know, and so one of the guys who I guess was moved as a result of this argued that it suppressed the free agent market because it made signing free agents too expensive, right? You don't only have to pay their salary, but you have to give up a player that the commissioner decides to send to the other team. And so it it basically ruins the market for free agency, right? Right. And since it's not in a union context, since it wasn't agreed to by the players, it's just an artificial suppression of the market. And so and so the NFL was like, come on, we're just a league like baseball. And at this point, the Supreme Court is just super embarrassed by the baseball antitrust exemption. And so they just don't extend it. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, ah, yeah, no, that's kind of a mistake and it's super embarrassing. <laughs> so it doesn't apply to football. And they said something similar with respect to baseball, you know, and 
but they, I mean, with, with respect to basketball, but they didn't in the big one that I'm sure you know about with Kurt Flood. Yeah, that's what I wanted to bring up. So, I mean, yeah. it, like it's I mean, Kurt Flood is seen by many, and, and rightfully so, as kind of the father of free agency. Yes. And, and a guy fought for his rights. But I, th- I don't think people know that Kurt Flood lost his case. I mean, yes. eventually free agency became part of, it was, it was, it just became part of the negotiation between the union and baseball and became part of the CBA. Yeah, but though Kurt, that's... though but that's Kurt a, Flood lost his case. Yeah, what happened with Kurt Flood, for people who don't know the background, though I don't know who's listening to this podcast who doesn't, but Kurt Flood was basically traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies when he was, you know, at the end of a very, like a long all-star career. And he just didn't want to be treated like chattel. And he's like, you don't have the right to just trade me like this. And so he he sued. He didn't report to Philadelphia and he sued. And it gets up to the Supreme Court. And it was like a five to two decision or something like that. Yeah, I think it was five to three. So, someone pulled someone out. Someone had they, to abstain. They had like ownership yeah. in the Cardinals or something. Right. Yeah. So so some sort of complicated arrangement. Yeah. But there were one of the, I think it was maybe seven to two. I don't remember. But one funny thing about the opinion is Judge Blackman writes the opinion. And the first opinion, is the first section of the opinion is one of the most ridiculous things you will ever see. <laughs> it is like it is like the Terrence Mann speech in uh, in uh, Field of Dreams, where he's like, "Baseball has stood the test of time," and then he like lists his like fifty favorite players. He remembered some guys. He yeah. remembered some guys he, he, in the opinion. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's just him being like, first of all, as precedent, baseball is so fucking cool. <laughs> I love it. Ba- everyone loves it. Everyone loves baseball. It is so great. And two two Supreme Court justices who agreed with him on the antitrust question just refused to sign on to it, probably because they just found it embarrassing. They're just like, what? This isn't law. What do you mean you just, like baseball? Just like write a book. Right. Right. And so that's it. And then what they and then he just basically was like, and by the way, he also, while while dropping Tinkers to Everest to Chance in a footnote in his list of 50 people, he broke them up. Like Tinker and Everest are next to each other. And then Chance is like 20 players later. I mean, so he, was, just, he was just writing. He went Tinkers, Evers. Who's that other guy? Uh, it's like yeah. And he wrote like some Je- more. Oh yeah, Chance, Chance. The Jeopardy, like, the Jeopardy uh, <laughs> time ran out, and then later he remembered Chance, and no one edited them back. Together. I think this is the type of thing that if it happened at the time, it it would be obviously incredibly embarrassing for all things law. But like, I kind of, I kind of love this this move. Like, I think, I think yeah. this guy just wanted history to know yeah. how much he fucked with baseball. Yeah, yeah, big fan, big fan. And then he just basically said the same thing that uh, Toulson did, which was essentially he's like, "Look, we admit now that it is definitely interstate commerce." Like, he didn't stick with that part of it. He's like, he's like, it's clearly interstate commerce. But Congress hasn't overruled us. So it's kind of not our so, problem. Yeah. And so it's not us. We don't, it's not our problem. And so 
we don't and he said now and the union existed and he's like there's a cba and so you get to sort of negotiate some of your terms and so therefore we're not going to overrule federal baseball and baseball still has this antitrust exemption that we won't extend to anyone else and when i say they won't extend it to anyone else like anyone else they didn't extend it to like a movie theater company that was like all of our exhibitions are local they wouldn't extend it to like a boxing commission who was like all of our you know fights or local exhibitions so like over the years they were very clear about what they wouldn't <laughs> extend that, it yeah you're not getting what baseball to. got yeah and i mean even there are even aspects of uh it, it, like but it's just they have been very clear about how baseball is this kind of orphan case and they may even like i'm sure that like among the Supreme Court justices, Gorsuch is probably someone who would vote to overturn it because he finds these kind of orphans very embarrassing. I don't remember the other areas where they exist, but he already got one of them, I think, on like state and local taxation of Internet stuff. Mm. You know, like there was a case that kind of made taxing internet purchases uh more complicated than it needed to be and he you know he led the charge against overruling this kind of weird anomaly <laughs> in the law and so he probably would be against the antitrust exemption until he realized that it helped the players so i i want to so let's take us to modern times here we are it's 2021 yeah. we're almost 100 years since the original ruling that granted baseball an antitrust exemption i kind of want to get into the reality of the situation which is baseball still has this antitrust exemption yeah it is it is we it is hard to see how exactly it would affect a lot for though there, i mean well that that was my question like the, well there are different what does this allow baseball to do that it would normally not be allowed to do well well, probably the two, like, it probably affects the labor market less than you would think. Number one, because of the CBA. And number two, because of the Messerschmitt and McNally ruling, which knocked out the reserve clause. Right. Right. Like, that was the big thing. Like, the reserve clause used to be that every standard player contract had an automatic renewal at the end. And so what Messersmith and McNally did, and I, this was the late 70s, right? Early what 70s. Messersmith uh, and McNally... Hmm? Early 70s, wasn't it? Uh, I, I don't like remember. I just remember... Yeah. I just remember Messersmith signing with the Yankees in the Bronx Zoo, like the Sparky Lyle book, and that was like mm -hmm. the 77 season right. or 78 season. So that's kind of my reference for it for the exact year. Like it was 76 or so. And so they play out what they they played out their option, right? Their initial contract runs out. They play out the automatic renewal for a year. And then their teams, I think for McNally, it was the Orioles and Messersmith. I don't remember. They renewed it again. And he's like, you can't renew it again. The renewal clause doesn't apply to the renewal. It only applies to the original contract. It can't be perpetual. Even though it had always been perpetual, this was this like the strategy of the union and their agents for challenging 
the reserve clause. And because it was arbitration, the antitrust exemption didn't apply. And the labor arbitrator ruled that the players were right. Mm -hmm. And so they got free agency and the players would never agree to reimpose that reserve clause interpretation right. in collective bargaining, right? So aside for cat from Catfish Hunter, who became a free agent because someone didn't know how to work their fax machine, <laughs> basically. Like they forgot to renew in time. <laughs> Literally, like they at one o'clock in the morning, they were like, ah, shit. Charlie Finley was like, oh, shit, we forgot to renew Catfish Hunter or whatever. And so he became a free agent because the reserve clause expired on his contract. Messerschmitt and McNally actually won it uh, in arbitration. And so it really opened up the labor stuff by avoiding the courts entirely. Right. right? But the two big places where I think it would matter are where it has mattered in the NFL. Number one, Al Davis moving uh, the Raiders back and forth all the time, right? Control over how owners can independently operate their franchises is a big one, right? It basically moves power from the league to the owners in certain circumstances if they don't have an antitrust exemption, and then the other one was uh, American Needle, which was a company that made like branded merchandise. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and they wanted to, they were arguing that the NFL's control over that, uh, as opposed to being able to negotiate with individual franchises, was an antitrust issue. And the Supreme Court agreed with that. Right. Like they the league tried to argue that they were a single entity for antitrust purposes who could control all of those things. And they were like, well, no, you're not actually a single entity. You are a bunch of independent entities who cooperate for certain purposes. Right. And so they uh, and so the for merchandising and things like that and intellectual property rights, the antitrust exemption, if it's stripped from baseball. Uh, would be a big deal. So, I mean, you you said that one of the the key things here is that it, it allows owners to operate um, as they wish. I guess would be a way to put it. Probably um, more less extreme than that because they sign contracts di- like giving some power to the NFL, right? But it would, you know, outside of that contractual context, it would allow them. Uh, to argue in certain circumstances that the NFL is uh, operating anti-competitively. So, uh, so, so Major League Baseball has this antitrust exemption. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume they work hard to make sure it stays that way. Yes. Uh, what would be the ramifications if they somehow lost it? I, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that it would be a huge deal. I mean, I think it would probably put more power in big city, uh, big market franchises, you know, the way that Jerry Jones kind of uh, can is a tail that wags the dog a little in the NFL. I think you'd see more of that than uh, the structure where, and as a Pirates fan, I don't always oppose this, but I do when they lose 100 games all the time. Uh, It gives power to small market franchises to kind of 
redirect money mm-hmm. and put on salary caps and things like that. Like, I mean, Bud Selig was, you know, from Milwaukee, and so he very much, you know, had a, sort of an electoral college approach to, right. to uh, team ownership. Um, and so you would probably see the big franchises not only spending more, but bending the rules even more in their favor in a way that at least forced the smaller markets to spend the money being shared. So when, when Major League Baseball decided to, to move the All-Star game out of Georgia, um, all of a sudden, some the, the kind of Republican lawmakers who like showing up on television a lot, um, led by Ted Cruz, uh, Josh Hawley, really, mm-hmm. really great people, um, said they're going to, you know, try to re- revoke their antitrust exemption, take it away. Yeah. Um, this feels like it has no chance, obviously. I, I mean, I don't know if it does or doesn't. I mean, the biggest thing weighing against it would be the timing, right? Like, even if certain people... uh even if certain people were sympathetic on the Democratic side, and I'm sure there are some who are sympathetic to revoking the baseball antitrust exemption, they're certainly not going to do it as part of the Derek Chauvin Act. Right. <laughs> and so, 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 you know, you're certainly like the timing of this sudden opposition to woke corporatism uh, from guys like Cruz and Hawley and McConnell is just so preposterous on its face that I don't even think they would move it forward. But even if they did move it forward, no, I don't think it would ever be passed under these circumstances. We, we did get to see my favorite phrase of all, which is everyone's favorite Marjorie Taylor Greene using the two word phrase that I'll never forget. Corporate communists. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. It's just an incredible, incredible mix there. So would... And who would would anyone in baseball would would the players benefit by the loss of an antitrust exemption? Um, they probably they probably would because it would probably make their uh. Well, I mean that's complicated too because of the they have a CBA. Well, one they have a CBA, and two beyond having a CBA, the Supreme Court uh also is not very good historically on the intersection of labor and antitrust like there are things called the statutory antitrust labor antitrust exemption and the non-statutory the statutory labor antitrust exemption is because after like the uh national labor relations act was passed um the, there were courts all over the country that were calling unions monopolies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, a union is a violation of the Sherman Act. And so Congress actually did go back and fix that one. And they're like, stop it. <laughs> like, you can't call <laughs> unions a monopoly for Sherman Act purposes. The National Labor Relations Act is supposed to allow unions. And so they created a statutory exemption. And then what grew out of that was the non-statutory exemption, which is that things that are legal under the National Labor Relations Act as incidental to bargaining can't be considered. And like in most circumstances, cannot be considered antitrust violations. Right. If it's part of legal collective bargaining, 
it doesn't become illegal under antitrust because you, you know, of how labor relations between labor and management are structured in various industries, right? And so that leads to different things, which is in the sports context, you will sometimes see the unions decertify. And the idea is that by decertifying, there is no longer a union management interaction. Mm -hmm. And so the imposition of labor terms can be considered under antitrust rules again. And the law around that is very complicated and not necessarily super interesting for (laughs) the purposes of the podcast, but it just sort of gives background as to how it may change things for the players, right? If if there were a strategic reason to decertify the removal of the antitrust exemption opens that up a little. And and we talked about some of the challenges, uh, you know, in 53 and Kurt Flood, and it seems like the Supreme Court's general attitude toward this is, yeah, this is stupid, but Congress should fix it, not us. Like, we're not the people, you're, 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 you're calling the wrong people. We're not the people yeah. to fix it. It's dumb. Is there, and I know predicting the Supreme Court's behavior is a fool's errand, but is there a type of case in, in this realm that would cause the Supreme Court to act as opposed to just saying, look, this is up to Congress. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, I think that they would be, I mean, I think the Supreme Court is much more willing to just throw away precedent now than they've ever been, you know, with the exception of maybe the civil rights era overruling the slavery era, <laughs> you know, uh, there's no difference between good things and bad things. Um, <laughs> so, so like the this Supreme, I mean, literally this morning, the Supreme Court just threw out some precedent regarding life without parole for juveniles, you know, and mm-hmm. so this Supreme Court isn't as sensitive to stare decisis because they think that liberals have fucked everything up and so this court i don't think would you know bow to the 72 kurt flood decision or you know 1970s kurt flood decision with any kind of fealty but i also don't think they would take the case like i don't think they think it's interesting enough and congress yells about it all the time and that's enough for the supreme court often to just back off and let the legislative process work like it's neither significant enough for the supreme court to care about in 2021 or it is like you know it gets kicked around in congress enough that they wouldn't want to step in which is probably smarter now than it was in the 70s or in the 50s. Like it really should have been changed then when it was a really big deal and it could have established precedent for how national industries like, you know, sports and entertainment franchises operate. So uh, so despite, you know, a, a, you know, a challenge every couple of decades and despite, you know, some some modern day blustering, um, is there, uh, should baseball feel safe that their antitrust exemption is intact and will stay so? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I certainly don't know any better than anyone else because everything has to do with like political climate and mm. the sort of 
vicissitudes and moods and whatever like i don't think they need to be worried too much and i certainly don't think they need to be worried because they need uh because the people demanding the antitrust exemption be revoked are doing it explicitly on grotesquely racist <laughs> grounds you know like they're not creating a mood to help their case right you know um you're just not going to get other senators who don't like uh corporate power to agree that the one corporate power we should revoke is the corporate power to recognize the humanity of minorities. <laughs> um, Charles, I, I want to thank you for coming on and explaining all of this to us. Uh, I, honestly, this is like checking off a, a life goal here, having you on a podcast. With me. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, well, I mean, I sort of just, you know, you can find me on Twitter at Ugarles, U-G-A-R-L-E-S. And uh, I hope to have Hostile Witness back up and running soon. It's just uh, difficult. Uh, the big difference uh, between Hostile Witness and Mike Dicta in among all of the other differences is that I actually have to edit Hostile Witness, which makes me reluctant to ever record <laughs> one. Um, but I love the people who I work with, uh, you know, um, and so I really like doing the podcast. I just, it's very hard to find the time to do a timely legal podcast that you aren't going to take three weeks to edit. We understand. So <laughs> follow Charles. His, currently his, uh, his, his Twitter name is Senator Lemon Goger. And he's, correct. of course, at Ugarles, U-G-A-R-L-E-S. And Charles, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. back to the podcast thanks again to charles Starr, who was as wonderful as i'd hope he would be um I, i'm sure i will retweet it but once he gets the podcast going again hostile witness i will i can't recommend it enough to listen to him and other really smart and funny people talk about legal stuff is is 20 times more entertaining than you would think it would be um our musical guest this episode we played a lot of rock a lot of rock and roll lately and we're flipping it up a little this week with some jazz so you were listening to the Event Horizon Jazz Quartet. Interesting story on this one. Um, 
There used to be a time, Jake, when people would go to bars and socialize. Um, Don't believe I, it. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've heard of these things. And um, there was a time where on Wednesday, my wife and I would go to a bar here in DeKalb and play bar trivia. And oh. I, will add that, I will add that we were really good at it and often as a two-person team would win against five and six people teams. So one of the people we played trivia with was, was a huge baseball fan and, and, and kind of at least knew of me. And, and we'd talk once in a while and I knew he was a musician and he's in a lot of bands and this is, this is his jazz band. It's, it's Event Horizon. Um, they're, it's a perform, a lot of original jazz composed by Jim Kazmarek and Scott Mertens, who is my, my bar trivia buddy. Um, a unique take on material written by people like Ornette Coleman, Miles Davis, Keith Jarrett, uh, even some Lennon and McCartney. We forgive them for that. Thelonious Monk, Cedar Walton, Pharrell Williams, along with some jazz standards. Um, NEA jazz master Dave Liebman described them once as it works in Carnegie Hall and it works in a strip joint. So a little change of pace with some jazz this week. We hope you enjoy. You can uh, you can find Event Horizon on Spotify and all the other places where you find music. Jazz is back in, Kevin. Thanks is to it? Mr. Thanks to Mr. Chisholm. That's right. All the kids are listening to it. All of the people my age, all the uh-huh. millennials. Is your hair blue yet? Uh, he his hair is no longer blue. I don't know if you oh. saw. He uh, it is now like blue and red. It's even better, honestly. Actually. Outstanding. There should just be a podcast that just talks about players' hair game. There should. Also, uh, you got me very sentimental for bar trivia, which used to be a staple of my life in New York where oh, really? my, my old boss at MLB, who is one of my favorite people in the universe and the moral compass of the universe, named a uh, woman named Gemma Kaneko, she used to run – she would host a bar trivia. And, like She was on Jeopardy and is like a, the smartest trivia person ever. And you know Ted Berg. Ted Berg yeah. at USA Today – or I mean, he used to be at USA Today. He would win. Him and his team would win every single week. They were like – the Serena Williams of bar trivia. Like they just did not ever lose. <laughs> and I would, you know, I would go and take the subway from Harlem to Brooklyn to get my ass handed to me by Ted Berg in bar trivia and then come back home. And the idea of getting to do that again just wells me up with joy. Yes, I get my second shot next week and then I, I hope bar trivia comes back and we can compete once again. Um, you ready to go through some emails? Love emails. Our first email comes from Juan. If you are a listener to my old podcast and therefore an old person, you'll remember him as Juan, the food service guy. Wow. Juan uh, asks, when you got hired by the Astros, did Jose Altuve recognize or remember you from the up and in interview you did when he was in the low minors? I never brought it up. I just didn't have it in me. Um, And Jose is like the nicest guy in the world. Um, I just never brought it up. (laughs) I just was like, that's "That's another world. I'm not going to do it. It's just like not – I mean it's like not worth explaining almost, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. Let me ask you, like, what percentage of the Astros players knew that you came from a slightly different type of career path? A few knew like I had a media past. I knew uh, a few. I remember um, when we got Dan Straley. Um, great he, guy. He, he, great guy. I agreed. I was on with, his like, podcast two weeks ago actually. Oh, were you? Yeah. I, 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 would, like, I, I would love to rehook up with him. But like Dan – I, I introduced myself to Dan in spring training. He said, yeah, he goes, man, you wrote some good stuff about me when I was with Oakland. I was, yeah, I did. <laughs> um, so a couple people knew it. A small, it was, it's a small number. It's not, it's more than zero, but a small number. 
Um, it's so interesting, right? Like the interactions that we have with players and they have so many little minute long interactions that they right. understandably lose track of in their heads. And like, they don't, you know, like I, I Jordan and I talk about this all the time. We interviewed Aaron judge in AAA in Scranton in 2017, 2016, 2016 before he got called up. Mm-hmm. And it was me and him and Jordan in the dugout. No one there, just the three of us. And I was about 15 minutes late to the interview because I lost my wallet. And I was like running around looking for it. And Jordan just had to sit there with Aaron Judge just to like kill time until I got back. And then a year later, he was like winning the home run derby, right? And like we always talk, do you think Aaron Judge like remembers that moment? Because I'll remember that moment until I die. Right. But like Aaron Judge doesn't. And like no. I've I've been close enough to Aaron Judge to be like, hey, you remember that? But like I'm never gonna ask him. Like I don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's that's my answer to this one. I didn't want to be that guy. Uh, it's a different world. Uh, our next email comes from Patrick, and this again goes back to some of the podcast stuff. Uh, one question that touches on the old days: Do you ever get feedback that you're playing a band's music has helped launch them? I don't have the episode number, but way back you had an up and in up and coming band named the Revivalists. I love their sound in the interludes. I ended up buying the album. Years later, I lazily asked Alexa to play top songs and was really amazed to hear their unique sound once again. And it turns out they had gotten huge. And I finally had my one true I heard them before they were big story. Have you heard similar stories from other bands you've featured? Patrick, you way overestimate my reach. Um, no. Uh, no one, even the revivals, no one's gotten big because I played them on the podcast. I am thrilled to use the podcast. You know, I... I as everyone who listens knows, I kind of grew up in the Chicago punk rock world. Music's very important to me. Um, most of many of my friends who are not in the baseball world are musicians. Um, and I, and I love playing bands and I love exposing people to new music, but I don't have, I'm not Casey Kasem here. I don't have the, the reach to make any band big. It just always thrills me. Everyone, you know, I, and I hear it almost every episode. Someone will tweet me and go, man, I really like that band. I bought their stuff. That's enough for me. Like I did that. That's, that's it. I've never, I, we're not as big as you think we are, Patrick. I let me. I, I mean, I have a different perspective on this, Kevin, because you know we haven't talked about this yet. But the whole reason I do what I do is because of your old show. <laughs> That's not and, true, but and we'll, go ta- ahead. we'll talk about that later. But like, I, there, at, when I was listening to Up and In, I was in high school. And that's a time in your life where your your music's tastes are very formative, right? Like, it's yes. very, you don't know what you like. And I think that the podcast played a role in like helping me kind of understand what type of music I do enjoy. And like the one band that stuck with me from from the show is a band that you played called Yellow Ostrich. Mm-hmm. And like I still have their music. I listen to it all the time. That's great. That makes me happy. See, that and makes like, me happy. It, but even more than that, like Jason talking about, you know, fucking Towns Van Zant every 10 minutes, like made me want to play and like listen to Towns Van Sant and that got me into John Prine. And like, now I consider myself like a big folk song guy, you know? So like it, 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 you're not, (laughs) let me say this to the people listening. Kevin didn't make anyone famous, but he, you certainly did change the way that I think a lot of younger people who listen to the podcast consumed music or like what types of music they chose to consume. I'll take it. That's great. I, I, I appreciate that. And B that's fantastic. That makes me, that makes me, that thrills me. Um, this email comes from Ryan. Ryan says, I saw this on Twitter and being a fan of cricket, I thought it was an interesting idea for those wanting to shorten games. Do you have any thoughts or takes on this? 
This is a Twitter exchange, and and the first person was was Eric Nussbaum, who I'm sure many of you already follow. Great book, wrote, buy his book. And he, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he wrote, "Here's a take: MLB should switch to seven inning games. They make for a way better product." And responded was uh, the the fantastic Twitter name of Norm Charlatan, um, which he said they should do it like cricket, where there's twenty twenty one day and test, and everyone can be happy with the length. And for people who don't know, and I, I'm I'm this is also the entirety of my knowledge about cricket. 2020 is a fairly recent uh, application to cricket that was invented for television. Um, so the game, it would be a quick game instead of a thing that took all day. Yeah. Um, two things like a, a 17 games, not a better product and B games aren't too long. Um, if you're complaining baseball is, is too long. I just like my answer tends to be like, do you actually like baseball? Um, I, I've never had a huge problem with game length. I don't think it should be a big focus. Before I go to my second point, where are you on that? I used to be like that. You've changed. Uh, slightly. Because I think I, I – if it was just for me, I have no problem with it. I personally don't. I do think that there is something to be said that I should not be MLB's audience. Um, that someone – I'm already in. And they, they really – there's not a lot they can do to lose me at this point. Um. I think that the games – it's not necessarily that the games are too long. It's that there is a perception amongst casual sports fans that the game is too long. And I think that tackling that perception – that perception, I think, restricts people mm-hmm. from getting interested in the first place. And whether or not MLB has to conduct pace of play stuff for eyewash purposes in order to get those – people to become interested or if those people are not worth trying to get interested in the first place, I don't know, but that perception exists. And I think that it is important and it is notable. Um, I do think that it's, for me, it's less about the overall time of the game and the way that the game, than it is the way the game moves. Right. Like baseball to me, like right. it it's has a, it's to more move more of a pace it. thing than a length. It's a thing. pace thing than a length thing. And like I'm coaching little league now six-year-olds and the biggest thing for me is just keeping the game moving right right like just and and i know there's a difference between six-year-olds playing the game and you know adults watching it but people are people and like you got to keep people engaged and, and entertained um and so just making sure that the game flows well is more important than it being five hours that being said a five and a half hour postseason game that goes nine innings i don't think that's ideal mm-hmm. right asking someone to casually sit down and watch five hours of a baseball game is restrictive to a lot of people, right? To an important playoff game. That's a lot of time. I'll do it and you'll do it. And everyone, hey, hey there, you'll do it too because you're listening to this. But a lot of people won't. And I think it's it's important to remember, like, who do we want the game to be for? Right. It's, that's interesting because I think it goes to a point that I make a lot when people complain about um, broadcasters. Right. Uh, I always just say they're, they're not for you. Right. They're, just, was... they're not there for you. The, the 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 broadcasters themselves, the things the broadcasters are saying, and and every and, and nearly every aspect of the production of this baseball game you are watching is not meant for you because you're going to watch anyway. They don't have to do anything to to. They don't have to do anything to help bring you to watch. They need to. You know, they they have casual fans, and that this, that's who it's aimed towards. This is something I've changed my mind on over the years. Like when I was younger, I would just you know like hawk. Oh my, mm-hmm. like I would shit relentlessly on Hawk, right? But Hawk wasn't for me. You know how many mm-hmm. White Sox fans are White Sox fans? Because like I was talking silly, you know what I mean? Like, right, like they that, loved him. 
and and, then, and they and they watched baseball because of him exactly. and because they watched the baseball games they could charge more for ad revenue and we live in a capitalist society and baseball is capitalist and therefore hawk was good for the white Sox, and so he was going to be their broadcaster right it was end of story it's not rocket science right like it's like that simple now am right. i happier now that jason benetti's running the show there oh yeah of course 100 but he's great he is he if i i think about this all the time if I had to do like a Mount Rushmore of desert island people, baseball people, I think Benetti is is on is on my desert island. He's your dude. Uh, he is one of my, yes. He is a great, other centered, kind, genuine human being. I I cannot speak any more highly of that man. So okay, so the I, second half, the second half of your of your question, the seven innings. Cricket. So this is a cricket point. It's just a, it's just a quick story. This might entertain you. It might not. But so early in my career with the Astros. There was a thought of, hey, cricket guys are swinging a stick at a ball. Should we be looking at cricket players? Mm. Are there cricket players who could maybe hit baseballs? And we decided to look into it. Uh, Low ball hitters. Low ball hitters. Yeah, me and another person um, who who worked in the international group uh, spent a very short amount of time looking into this. And, and we spent some time watching cricket and watching cricket's players and watching how they operate and watching slow motion video of cricket players and, and thinking about this. And, and, and we came to the conclusion, uh, the very, very uh, strict and, and informative conclusion of maybe. And then we realized that, you know, the guys we would really be interested in would be, obviously, the best cricket players, right? Yeah, and so then we're like, "Oh, let's find who the best cricket players are." Sachin Tendulkar, that's my we, guy. So we start watching these best cricket players, and like, this is actually kind of interesting. He's athletic. There's there's clearly hand eye coordination, um, and then we looked into something that we should have looked into at the beginning, and we learned that these dudes, like the best cricket players in the world, are making forty, fifty million a year. Yeah, and then we went, "Yeah, we can't do this." Yep. What do you, what do you, hey, you want to go to Corpus Christi for a little bit? Nope. Yeah. I just, you know, it was just like, okay, into that project, onto the next thing. It's like, hey, I'm the eighth most famous person in India. Right. So I'm exactly. Gonna hang here. Yeah. What do you think about Midwest League? You ever been to Quad Cities? It's a good time. I'm good. It's Riverboat Casinos. There's you a, grand, you make three grand a month. Come on. You want to try this. Outstanding Netflix documentary about the Indian Premier League cricket season called cricket uh-huh. fever mumbai indians highly highly recommend i gotta look into this I, I don't i don't i'll be honest with you I, I still don't understand the game i've never like watched an entire match or anything like that but like it, it just realized like we had no sales pitch to these guys it's like hey do you want to try baseball if you become the best player in the entire game you'll still make less money than you're making now i mean yeah like it's it's basically this is the thing, like million dollar arm, that whole thing, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if you find the guys when they're younger, and you give them a chance, and you get them in the developmental system at an earlier age, like maybe it could work. I mean, like, right? But like you're not poaching, like in the same way that the NFL has been able to poach like Aussie rules football players. Have they? Yeah, there there've been a couple guys who they've brought over. I don't think any of them have made too big of an impact, but there have certainly been a number of players um, who have like gone to the NFL. Because like the money's better, like in mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, yeah. If you but, were a, an old person, you would remember when Australian rules football was a frequent late night thing on ESPN. I remember. I used to watch it on ESPN three. Yeah, on my computer. 
damn good time. Um, Jake, I want to catch up with you, which is what we always do with our co-hosts. Let's um, do it. You are one half, along with your partner, Jordan. Yeah. Of Cespedes Barbecue. Yes. Watching you go from a pair of high school doofuses who'd send emails to the podcast once in a while to multimedia superstars has brought me untold joy. Thank you. Have you, obviously, even when this kind of became a thing, right? So you had Cespedes Barbecue, you had a very funny Twitter account, and, and things were moving on, and all of a sudden you're at MLB. Um, kind of talk about your, you know, your path, and is there? Did you expect anything like this in no. your life? Like what? What was? What was the? What was the plan? If it wasn't baseball, like you're, you know, you're, you know, a relief pitcher at a D three school. I don't think you had a lot of pro dreams. Um, what was the plan? In, in a normal world for you? I mean, there was – for first of all, there was never a, a plan with for me and Jordan. Like it wasn't like we sat down when we were 17 and it was like, here's how we're going to accomplish X, Y, Z, right? It, it was always like let's just make a bunch of goofy shit for ourselves and put it on the internet. And then we just got really lucky. Um, my plan was like I was a Middle Eastern history and Islamic studies major in college. And like – I didn't know what that was gonna gonna do. I just studied it because I was I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought about going to grad school for that. Um, I had thought about you know trying to become a baseball coach. I've thought about you know I I always joke with Jordan that I'm five days away at all times from quitting everything and being a high school history teacher and coaching baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the I didn't have a plan really. You know, I knew that I liked baseball and I wanted to work in baseball and that in college, my approach was to study what was whatever was most interesting to me and like trust that I would learn better that way and that I would grind hard enough that I could do something with baseball. Um, And I was fortunate enough that that was the case with Jordan. And I think, you know, we get the question a lot, like, how were you able to go from making this thing in 2012 in your parents' living room to, you know, doing it for a living? And the number one thing I say is, like, we we were fortunate enough to be able to get into a car and go and see the world of baseball. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the defining moment, we, the origin story is we were at one of the baseball prospectus events and we were leaving straight from there to drive to Clinton, Iowa. Um, and we wow, had, that's where you started. That was the first ever game we did on a trip together. That's a rough place to start. And that's exactly what helped us because the idea was the whole origin story of that trip was that we wanted to go see Byron Buxton. Okay. Yeah. And Buxton was playing for Cedar Rapids at the time and they were playing in Clinton and we were like, we'll go to Clinton. We'll drive from DC to Clinton. And the, the like two days before that he gets called up. And we're like, oh, well, I guess we're going anyway. So we go to the BP event and we ask a question about Clinton, Iowa to Farron and Parks. And they're like, you're going there right away? And they were, and we were like, yeah. They're like, that is one of the worst places in minor league baseball. The whole town smells like dog food because there's right. a Purina factory in the town. Right next to the ballpark. Right there. Is there. A, there is a pet food factory 
and if you go to Clinton, it's an old beat up park. Um, and the entire game, you just smell, it literally smells like burning pet food. Yeah. And so we were like, yeah. And parks and fan were like, you guys are nuts. You're 17 and you're driving to Clinton, Iowa from Nuts Park. Like, all right. Like I kind of fuck with that. Um, but I always use the Clinton, Iowa example because, you know, when we started doing this more and more and interacting with players and baseball people, like if I can say, hey, oh, you play in the Midwest League, like Clinton, Iowa smells like dog food, right? It's the type of tidbit, the type of thing where like someone then knows that I know what I'm talking about to an extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And you develop that language within the game and that, that experience and that builds credence and that builds connections and that's how you move forward. Right. And we were fortunate enough to be able to get into a car and drive to Clinton, Iowa as 17. Right. And that was a huge, huge deal for us. Those road trips we were driving across the country, just seeing the world of baseball, talking to people, meeting people, interacting with the game. That was the whole thing, really. And you have this all, this all going on. And then like the first real gig was MLP, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the the general timeline was we were doing some stuff for BP over the summers and right. then like leading in like at the like I want to say like January of my junior year of college, MLB reached out and was like, we like what you guys do. Do you want to do it for us for the summer? Do a road trip for us. And we were like, duh. So we drove from DC to San Diego and back for the all-star game. Like we lived out of the car for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And like that. MLB couldn't front you up a hotel. Oh no. I mean, we had hotels. But oh, like, okay. You know, like I was worried you sleep in here. Um, like, you know, like I brought like a dresser drawer and like put it in the back and like had all my clothes in there for, for, <laughs> for a month, you know? And like, we saw a game every day and it was the whole thing. Um, and then we, I guess we did a good enough job with that, that they offered us a gig out of school. Um, I graduated my bait, my college baseball team got eliminated on a Saturday that Monday I graduated, I did graduation. Third, uh, Wednesday, I flew to Sonoma, California and tried out for the Stompers for one week and got my teeth absolutely kicked in. <laughs> I've never like tweeted about it or like done anything on it because I wanted to like see if I could actually pitch, right? I did that for a week. The following Wednesday, I flew back home. Monday was my first day at MLB. So it was like all incredibly condensed. Um, but that was kind of how it, it all got got going and from mlb how long were how long were you with mlb at the end um so we were never actually full-time like we were right. never like employees which was always a frustrating point of contention there um we were there for the second half of 2017 all of 2018 and then at the end of 2018 like the winter leading into 2019 we were kind of getting a little frustrated and like thought that we should be doing like more on camera stuff and like we didn't think we were being used the right way and we got connected like with an agent and that agent like kind of helped us out and got us a gig uh with DAZN the rest in peace to the show we hosted called Change Up on DAZN which was like red zone for baseball which I talked about before and we hosted the weekend edition of that for all of 2019 so that was like 9 p.m. to midnight Friday Saturday night mm-hmm. or Saturday, Sunday nights, which was like, you know, a grind, but in the best way. Like it was the most fun ever. We were working out of Secaucus in New Jersey and like had full access like at 1 a.m. to the the Studio 42 field. 
you know, and like we would just take wiffle ball BP in there all the time. Um, and so like we were working like part time for MLB that whole 2019 season, like doing like one thing a week for them, like going in one day a week. And then the last thing we officially did for MLB was the Bahamas home run derby in January of 2020. And then we joined um, the ringer doing a podcast for them like last May and we and then Fox Sports picked us up like three weeks ago. So and, and so what are you doing for Fox Sports exactly? So writing twice a week, which is great because I haven't we haven't really been writing the last year. And is so, it a co byline thing? Uh if we want to. They've been super great, like about letting us write what we want to write. So like mostly it's individual, which is cool. Because mm. you know, Jordan and I have different interests, obviously. Yeah, you're different people. We're different people. Um like Jordan wrote a really great story about uh, Aaliyah Andrews today, who's like the best defender in college softball. Mm-hmm. I wrote a profile on your mean Mercedes where I talked to his uh, <laughs> Pecos League roommate, um, <laughs> which great. was super fun. Uh, and so, yeah, like we're getting to write again, which is great. And I think we're going to be doing like remote video stuff once the world gets back to normal and hopefully getting to be in a studio a little bit. And I really enjoy doing live commentary stuff because i think that that's the really interesting untapped like making a, a live baseball experience for people that don't want to listen to the broadcast that feel like the broadcast doesn't speak to them um that's something that i think we're really passionate about and i think we'll get a chance to do but you know it's been two weeks so i don't totally know right, uh, right. but i've you know it's been good so far and and so you know obviously you've had this it's, it's it's an amazing story. It really is. Um, like, do you, are you just kind of rolling with it, or is there a long term vision? There's no vision. You're just rolling with it. This is this is where we are right now. I'm worried about. I'm worried about what I do tomorrow. Well, people always the rest will take care of itself. Exactly, and like people always ask me this kind of in the context of working specifically together. You know, the two of us together. Yeah. For me, it's as simple as I enjoy what I do because I get to do it with Jordan. Mm-hmm. Like the second that it doesn't, that I don't get to do it with him, I think I'm going to enjoy it less. And it might be time to, you know, find another passion or do something else. But like, as long as people want to keep paying me to do this, like, I feel like I owe it to continue to make fun baseball stuff for people. I enjoy it. It's I'm not, I'm, I, I'm incredibly lucky and privileged to get to be able to do what I do. And I, I kind of owe it to the universe in a way to continue to do it and to, you know, pry that door open for other people in the same way that people helped pry that door open for me. And so so with the Fox thing, you know, once the world gets somewhat level and normal, there's a possibility of, of getting back and doing some studio stuff. Hopefully. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's the goal. I mean, to me... I also want to get back out in the world and showcase the world of baseball kind of beyond MLB, which mm-hmm. is something that I'm very passionate about. I really want to do a bunch of things on the Alaskan League. The Alaskan Summer League is something I'm very interested in. Obviously, the Dominican Winter League. And I you've been down there. I was in – I lived there basically like nonstop for about two and a half months over like the 2018 to – 19 to 20 season. Right. I was there and the the goal was like to work on my Spanish and kind of, I was just there alone. Like I didn't, baseball prospectus paid me to write like once a week, but I was just kind of living there off my own 
dime because I just wanted to have that experience. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to have it as I got older. And I learned, I mean, I learned a ton and like made a lot of great connections and just my Spanish is so still so terrible. Like going to the Dominican is the worst place in the world to try and get better at Spanish. Yes, it is. Um, I'm certainly better now than I was when I went. Um, But like that was an invaluable experience. And it, it really opened my eyes more so that like success at the major league level is not the be all and end all of the world of baseball. Right. You know, and Cesar Valdez was really the the window to that for me. Like watching what being a member of Lise meant to him was way more important probably than like getting to, oh, yeah. to pitch in the Mexican League or even now for the Orioles, you know? And so obviously the pay's better in Baltimore, but like it baseball means something to so many people around the world beyond the scope of like how the Dodgers are doing, right? And that was how I kind of became aware of that on the deeper level. I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't. People, you're right. I don't think a lot of people understand that if you go to like the Dominican, like in in the hotel, I would always stay at. If you're going during the year, um, where you go to the Radisson or the uh, no, the Embassy, the, the Embassy Suites, no, the Haragua. The okay, 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 okay. Um, so at the Haragua, uh, just like on the, on the basic TV package, you know, on your, you know, hotel TV, right? Yep. Yeah. And you're going through and there's channel five and there's channel six and you're rolling through and there's a couple cable channels and CNN international and stuff. And then at the end of the run are literally six channels. Yep. One for each team in the Dominican winter league. There's the Lise channel, you know, um, there's the Escojito channel. Like the, every team has its own channel that's just showing the game. And if the game's over, they're showing a replay of the game. Yep. That's it. Um, that's the that's whole thing, the, man. Right. That's the whole thing. And like I, my first interaction with the Dominican Winter League at all was when you had, didn't you have Kevin Cabral on? We did. Yeah. Like, and I ran into him down there and was like, I heard you on the pod. <laughs> like, that's you know, great. like it, it really is a beautiful, beautiful place in a beautiful, beautiful league. And like, it, it can be a beautiful thing in and of itself and not how it relates to MLB. Like Peter right. O'Brien went down and won the MVP when I was there. And, like, mm-hmm. he probably won't play in the big leagues again. And that's right. okay. You know? Yeah, and then the names that show up on those rosters sometimes, it's just Incredible. Phenomenal. It's incredible. And, like, the, the, everyone's, like, there's just the level of access there was so good. Right. And just talking to people. and I mean, like, two years ago, Melito Perez was still pitching down there. Dude, I mean, uh, Raul Valdez is still there. He's, like, 44. Mm-hmm. He, like, finished second in the pitcher of the year. And, do you know about Evan McLean? Yeah. Evan McLean is like the the nice version of Kenny Powers. He's just been in the Dominican for a decade now. That's he has one big league inning. Right. You know? Like it, I just think it's such a it's so interesting. It it feels like I love Major League Baseball and I'm sure you do too, but there's a level of it and you can talk about this better than I can being someone who kind of really loves counterculture in a way that I maybe don't to the same extent. Like MLB is great, but like I want something that feels real and raw and genuine. That's the Dominican Winter League. And not like corporatized in a way. That's a Dominican Winter League. That yep. is um, Division Three baseball that <laughs> I have a podcast on that Jordan and I just do a podcast on only Division Three baseball. Like that that level of baseball, that level of sports, that level of culture is what really fascinates me. I would say. Um, speaking of culture, let's go into our moment of culture. 
Wait, Kevin, before we before we go to moment yeah. culture, I, I, I just gotta just to give people perspective, like this me being on this show right now is the equivalent of getting to open for the band that made you want to play music. <laughs> it's that simple. When You're I ridiculous. when I don't shut the fuck up. When I was in high school, I'm gonna embarrass the shit out of you right now. When I was uh-huh. in high school, I was obsessed. I found up and in around in the seventies somewhere. Not the 1970s. In the 70s. And I went back and listened to every single one at least twice. Like, I, I remember vividly, like, going back to the first one. And it was like, do we really believe Elvis Andrews is, like, you know, really going to be this good for the range? Like, it's like, wow, it's a time capsule. But the point, like, the level of purpose that the show meant to me. I'm the final show when you read the passage from the last Rockstar book, Liz Fair. I memorized the entire passage you read and was able, I can still kind of do it, was able to recite it by heart, word for word, at a point in my life. Wow. Like, uh, I had isolated compromises and evil, easy to isolate, difficult to, to attack. Like, I could do the whole thing, right? And like, I just being on this show means an inexplicable about to me that you really it's so silly i know but i just can't convey that enough i knew the whole thing i downloaded you reciting that passage as an audio file and would listen to it on my ipod just that minute and a half just so i could like know the words i feel like i gotta go back and listen to this now isn't that nuts like it is a little nuts yeah not gonna lie but, like, it's a type of thing where, like, if it means something to people, it means something to people. And it's great, right? Like, Yeah, it, no, for sure. I, I like, honestly, like, super touched by that. Yeah. And, and you hear people say the podcast means something to them or helps them just get through the like, day. That's, yeah. It's a great feeling. And it yeah. motivated – I think what about the pod that really motivated me is, is like, it, it made me realize that baseball was enormous, that like what was baseball was all of this, right? Mm-hmm. It was the tangents. It was Kevin Cabral in the Dominican Winter League, right? It was Jason Nabergall. It was all these little things that were outside of my purview as like an Orioles fan cheering for Brian Roberts, right? And it mm-hmm. opened up my mind and made me, you know, eternally curious up to find and discover that extended universe of baseball. I think that's the kind of the thesis of what that show meant to me, at least. Thank and, you. And now I'm old and I know you and it's less cool. It is less cool. And, and that's I, okay. I, you know. we, we all get less cool. We all get less cool as we age, right? We all sell that's out to the God, man. God knows that's for sure. Ugh. Um, well, I don't know how to go to a moment of culture now. You've brought the show to a screeching halt. I apologize. <laughs> But also not. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Uh, moment of culture. Hey, Jonathan India just hit his first home run of the year, by the way. Good for him. Love his hair right now, speaking of Good hair. hair. Wait, don't the Reds have like 18 home runs today? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I get I a, I, Okay, so. I haven't looked. I just have like, uh, you know, I, I just realized I have like three monitors here and one has Twitter in it. And I just saw Jonathan India hit a home run. I have, I get a major MLB home run. I get an alert every home run. On your phone? On my phone. I get an alert That's for too many. Run. And now it is <laughs> in today's game. In today's game, it is. I mostly have it so that I can keep up my thread of congratulating Reese Hoskins. 
um, <laughs> for every home run he hits. So yeah, Winker, Winker, Castellanos, Suarez, Vado, and India. Huh. This has been your Cincinnati Reds daily home run podcast. We got you. Uh, moment of culture, Jake. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I'm going to talk about a, a show that, that just debuted this week on Hulu called Sasquatch. Have you heard of this? I It came across – I was watching an old Bourdain episode last okay. night, and uh, there was an ad for Sasquatch. That's all I, I know. I, watch it. So I'm not going to ruin anything for you, but here's the setup. It's about this guy who is an investigative reporter, and I mean a hardcore investigative reporter, kind of guy who is like – um, almost like gone like undercover cop level infiltration into weird things. Like, you know, he's, he's basically become, you know, he joined a white nationalist group, like not because he believed it, but just to be, to, to be able to provide that level of reporting. You know what I mean? He became a skinhead. Um, this is a, a, you know, those guys are psycho. This guy's a bit of a psycho in terms of the way he does investigative reporting. But um, in California, Northern California, North of wine country, something called the Emerald Triangle. Uh, it's Mendocino, Humboldt, and another county. And in the early 70s, a lot of the hippie world from the Bay Area ended up wanting to kind of retake the land, if you will, and not leave in the city and, and live their free lives in the middle of nowhere. And they went up there, and a lot of them, in order to make money, began to grow marijuana. And uh, with the drug kit trade came the drug trade. Um, and therefore other people realized that you could grow amazing marijuana up there and it became more of a criminal enterprise, if you will. And this investigative reporter at one point in the early nineties, uh, spent a couple of days working at one of the marijuana farms, um, harvesting and he half saw, half heard a story of three people being killed, bodies ripped apart. And the people there were convinced that Bigfoot got them because the other thing about the Emerald Triangle or it's in Mendocino Humboldt County is it's Bigfoot country. This is where Bigfoot hunters live. It's where the famous Bigfoot footage was, was filmed, right? The, the big footage, the big footage. And so people up there, there's people there, you know, genuinely believe in Bigfoot. And so all he remembered, you know, this is, you know, more than a quarter century later, it's as weird as that might sound, but all he remembers is this 1993, Stores, half half heard, half half seen story of these three people being killed and then attributing it to Bigfoot. And he decides to figure out what the hell happened and if three people really were killed and what and not believing in Bigfoot what the real story was. And it is phenomenal. It, it twists and turns and and a, a pretty fascinating history of, of that area of the country and, and, and how things work up there. I actually know a person who was driving uh, from the Bay Area to up to, to Portland and, and they just kind of stopped for the night. And it was just it's it's utterly beautiful landscape. They Incredible. Decided to go for a, they decided to go for a walk. Right. You know, for, before they went to bed and they were encountered by a couple Guys wearing masks, holding assault rifles, saying "Get the fuck out of here, or you're going to get killed," because they were protecting their their business. Um, it's dangerous up there, and um, but it, it's 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 you can if you want to binge it one night, you can. It's only three episodes; they're all like forty five minutes long. Um, it, it's what we did, and an incredible story of this guy just remembering 
vaguely the story of these three people getting killed and trying to figure out a if it's real and b what actually happened hmm. um and it's fascinating and incredibly well done i will add it to the queue what you got jake so like i watch a lot of baseball and as a result i don't watch as much television i would say as the average person i also became relatively obsessed during quarantine with professional cycling which it takes up a lot of my time However, the like one, Tour de France kind of stuff. Oh, like beyond. Like I am in deep. Like to, the Tour de France is the tip, tip, tip of the iceberg. Okay, that's the only thing we watch. Like my wife and I watch the Tour de France mainly like late at night before bed, and mainly just for like beautiful high HD the, shots, aerial shots of France. It is a, the Tour de France is great. It is it is bright colors, nice bikes through beautiful vistas in HD. Even better if you have you know excited British commentary. But like yes. no, I I like pay thirty bucks a month to get like the Belgian races happening in February that I wake up in the morning for. Like I, could I have current, no idea. I can name more professional cyclists right now than players in the NBA. Is where my life has gone, and I have no one to talk about it with except for Michael Bauman at the Ringer, because the only other person who gives a shit about this that I know. Do you- so here's my question. I, I know you have uh, quite a baseball. Do you do you do you have cycling jerseys of your favorites? Great. So there's like a bit of a. I do a lot of cycling, and that's going to be my plug, and I'll talk about that later. But I do have a cycling jersey for my favorite cycling team. Yes. You don't really have individual rider jerseys per se. Okay. Like you don't have names on the back. There is this right. very okay. cool thing in cycling where the world champion gets to have a special colored jersey. Like they have a rainbow jersey. Do you and just get that like do you just get like for that for the year? For the year. You get it for the year and then you also get then from then on you get like rainbow stripes on your sleeve to indicate that you were once the world champion. Mm. And then they have special jerseys for all the champions from different countries. So like the Croatian guy has like a very Croatian flag jersey and like the dutch guy has like a dutch jersey right but 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 he's the only croatian guy who wears that jersey the only one because he's he's they're the champ croatian champ the croatian champ the the better country i should have used is slovenia slovenia is now sneaky the best cycling country in the world they have the number one and two ranked cyclists in the world anyway anyway that is not my moment of culture although it is really all i think about besides baseball is professional cycling i'm obsessed with it now it's kind of crazy um the show that I wanted to talk about is something called We Are the Champions. Is this something that you've heard of, Kevin? No. It's on Netflix, you said. It is on Netflix. Um, it is narrated by Rain Wilson, who is on The Office. I am mm-hmm. not – The Office is fine. I agree. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, Rain Wilson seems fine. It seems pretty good. Uh, you don't see him. He narrates it. The whole shtick of the show is basically these obscure competitions that exist uh, around the world. Oh, I think I've seen previews for this. Okay, I know what you're talking about. I've not seen it, but I know what you're talking about. And Yeah, and there are just like a lot of very fat... I think there's six episodes. They're each only like a half hour, very bingeable. The good ones, the best ones are one about cheese rolling. I, I know about the cheese rolling. The yeah. cheese rolling, it's incredible. It's like all great footage and slow-mo falling down the hill. Fantasy hairstyling. And <laughs> there's one on chili eating. And there's one on frog jumping competitive frog jumping basically how far can you get a frog to jump um they're great it's just highlighting people who really 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 care 
and are invested in something that you've never heard of before. Right. I th- th- this sounds right up my alley. I've, I've I'm always amazed, and you know, I think this shows in some of the content. I'm always amazed by people who are incredibly into one thing. They're my favorite people in the world. Right. Um. And I, and and I always remember just we just called him the paint guy, and this was twenty years ago. Like we just had to get some paint. We we're gonna paint the bathroom, right? And we went to the hardware store, and the paint guy there. You just could tell within 10 minutes of dealing with him that his whole life was paint. Motherfucker loved he, paint. And that he absolutely loved paint. And he just, and I was like, I'm so happy I'm painting right now because of this guy. This guy has brought me joy because of, of what he's told me about painting and how much he's into this. Um, I love people like that. Love it. Then you will love the show. It, it I is, will check this out. It is all about passion, this show, and caring about stuff. And I think that's something in this world that people do too often is is yuck people's unproblematic yums like yes if you like something here's the thing if you like you know really mainstream pop music if you're just like all in on like Dua Lipa I'm not she's fine if that's your thing I hope you have the greatest time in the world Yep, and I, like, I I used to be that guy too. I'll admit it. I used to be that guy. You're, you know, can't believe you listen to this. You're an idiot. Like, like, yeah. Go it, and have a good time, it, man. It bring, anything brings you joy. It's fine. If something means something to you, and you don't infringe upon the rights or happiness right. of others, like I I wish you the best. I no hope question. that you thrive. And this show, we are the champions, is so much. It's like. I would never want to eat a pepper with 17 million Scoville units, but like, I'm happy that you love it. Mm-hmm. Right. As long as you're not hurting anyone, I'm either here to help or get out of the way. Exactly. That's all it is. Jake, I think we're done here. I think we are. I can't thank you enough for coming on and accepting the delivery of the co-host chair for a week. My pleasure. My honor. Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, you can listen to Jordan and my podcast at The Ringer Baseball Barbecue every Tuesday. We write twice a week at Fox Sports. You can follow us on Twitter at CespedesBB. You can follow my personal account, which I recently created to tweet about cycling. See, told you, I'm obsessed. Jake underscore Mince. Um, we have a podcast slowly about Division Three baseball. We're like the Division Three baseball, like Joe Lenardi bracketology people. We here you go, Kev. We have votes in the top twenty-five, each of us individually every week. Um, we really care. Who publishes the top twenty-five? D3Baseball.com. Okay. Uh, we are two of the twenty-five votes. Um, and my alma mater, number one in America right now. Shouts out to my Washi Bears. I did put them number one, but so did fifteen other people. Uh, and then I would say the only other thing I want to plug, Kevin, is that this summer. I will be biking from New York City to Chicago um, and raising charity, raising money for charity along the way. Uh, if you listen to my podcast, you know why. Because I went on the show in October when the Tony La Russa rumors first came out. And I said, if the White Sox actually hire him, I will walk to Chicago. They then hired him and I am biking to Chicago. How long is that going to take? It's going to take about two weeks and change. It's about, if I did it straight, it'd be about 900 miles, but we're going to go to a minor league game every day. And we're kind of do like a 
what is minor league baseball in 2021? What does it look like? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to bike from city to city. It's about 85 miles a day. It'll end up being around 12, 1300. And we're going to try and raise, I haven't actually tweeted this out or anything yet, but we're going to be raising money for an organization called Lost Boys um, on the south side of Chicago that provides a kind of sports uh, development for underserved, uh, under-resourced neighborhoods in the south side. Um, And we're going to try and raise like a lot of money because I think if I'm a dumbass on a bike, people will be like, yeah, I'll toss in 50 bucks. He's biking across America. It's the least I can do. So I'm in. Thanks. I'll say, uh, may, you know what? Maybe I'll keep going. Do another day. Go to DeKalb. <laughs> that's, that's only 60 more miles. That's easy. And, and it's fucking flat too. Flat as hell. Once you, once you get, yeah, flat as hell. Once you get past the Appalachian mountains, you have nothing but flat. Yeah. Can't, can't wait for Indiana. <laughs> uh, believe me, you can wait for Indiana. Um, so thanks again, Jake. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll talk to you next week.